the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, and he's here to say good afternoon. Welcome. It is the fourth day of June, in case you'd lost track. And uh, Craig Roberts, once again in your ear, as we are each Monday through Friday at this time, addressing issues that impact your life and your world. Got a pretty full agenda for you today. Coming up a little bit later on, we've got more tickets, believe it or not, more tickets to Spirit West Coast that will be happening this Friday at the Concord Pavilion. Don't stress, we'll get them to you. We'll call. So if you've got some time on Friday, you keep listening and we'll tell you how to win tickets a little bit later on in this first hour. We're also uh, later on in this first hour going to be joined by Pastor Steve King. He's got a new book out, fascinating book. It's uh, it's one that's kind of must reading, I think, for all pastors out there, but also for the people in the pews. It really talks about the challenges of having, um, how should we say this, a, a proper attitude when it comes to ministry leadership. And if you think about some of the scandals that we've seen recently, including a pastor who's now been accused of engaging in a murder-for-hire scheme, wow, makes you wonder what's going on in some corners of leadership today. Well, we'll look at eight ways ministry leaders can thrive and finish strong. Pastor Steve King joins us in tonight's program. But I, I want to lead off with a story that um, we have been following with tremendous interest over the past many weeks, and that is, of course, the growing number of states that have been passing uh, more and more restrictive legislation addressing the issue of abortion on demand. And uh, as we watch the debate continue to unfold over the last and final Planned Parenthood abortion clinic in Missouri, it raises the question, are we there yet? Meaning, over the course of the last 45-plus years since the Roe decision, Pro-life people have been eager to see some court take up the issue and bring about a revision of the Roe decision. Maybe perhaps we're there. In a very revealing opinion written by Justice Clarence Thomas, who, by the way, he's settling the rumors. He's not planning on retiring anytime soon. But in a, a recent decision concerning the uh, the Indiana law, he essentially says, how should I phrase this? The Supreme Court has been kicking this can down the road for far too long, and at some point it's going to need to take up the issue. All right, let's talk about exactly what that means. We're joined now by Senior Counsel and Vice President for the Center for Life with the Alliance Defending Freedom, and Kevin Taro, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Kevin, give us uh, your insights. First, I know that a number of people were very encouraged to hear not only Justice Thomas raise the issue of, of his, uh, suggesting that the Supreme Court's going to have to 
finally look at this issue, but I think also encouraging to see that we have a member of the high court speaking the truth about Planned Parenthood that many of us have said for years, and that is that there's more about the science of eugenics to the agenda of Planned Parenthood than anyone really wishes to either admit or realizes. You're right, Craig. That was very encouraging to have Justice Thomas do that. Uh, It's also encouraging that the court, seven members of the court, upheld an Indiana law saying that uh, babies shouldn't be just treated like medical waste. And if they pass away, either by abortion or some other way, they have to be treated humanely, and uh, even if they're unborn. And that was very encouraging. I think also, certainly, Justice Thomas's opinion, uh, which said that the court needs to take up uh, this issue to make sure that we're not discriminating against kids in the womb. We don't tolerate that. In other contexts, we shouldn't do it in the womb also. Help us understand all of this in context uh, of the the 73-row decision and where we're at today. Now, essentially, at the basics, that decision created a constitutional, quote-unquote, right to abortion based on what many of us believe to be a a very fallacious approach um, at the right to privacy, but essentially said that there is now a constitutional right to abortion. And I have to wonder, with the high court creating that right, wasn't it now or then at the time obligated to address the nature and scope of what it meant by that, quote-unquote, right? Well, certainly uh, it's been trying to address it, or maybe not trying, but has been enforced to address it over the years. And and we think uh, the court eventually is going to revisit Roe versus Wade and and is uh, is going to roll that back because things have changed. Uh, the science has changed. People realize that it's not just a clump of cells. Uh, things have changed. People realize that um, women uh, have choices now um, to carry their baby and have a lot more support with pregnancy centers and that kind of thing. So uh, we're pretty encouraged that, uh, that uh, the court is probably going to take it up soon. And would part of the decision to do that, you mentioned about some of the advancements that we've seen, certainly um, the advent of things like the ability through uh, sonograms to look at the life in the womb and recognize it as a a living being. There have certainly also been uh, many strides made available in terms of helping women to avoid unplanned pregnancies in the first place. Uh, So with all of that, what kind of argument? practically speaking, can be brought forward here. If if fundamentally the court in 73 said that under the terms of right to privacy, a woman has a right to choose with her body, does a revisit of that 73 decision mean necessarily in, in the wake of some of the modern advancements that we are now finally acknowledging that the woman is not the only one with a right here, that the child uh, has a right as well? That's right, Greg. And, and of course, there have been some other things that uh, have demonstrated that it's it, that Roe v. Wade is, has been eroded. And that is um, that um, it's not well-settled law. You see these uh, bans in Alabama and heartbeat bills in Georgia and places like Missouri. Um, they're an indication that Roe v. Wade is something that has not been accepted by the country as a whole. States are still saying that, no, we have a right in protecting unborn life. We have a right to... Um, protect women because abortion is dangerous. So um, I think the court can recognize that and, and very well may recognize that in the next year or two. 
Just as Thomas, as we've suggested, has um, has given public acknowledgement now to something that has been said about the agenda behind the likes of Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood for many, many years, going back to I mean, these accusations are <laughs> unbelievably almost 100 years old, dating back to the 1920s, that suggests that there was a very strong eugenics bent um, to what Planned Parenthood was doing, and, and maybe we should take a moment and explain for listeners what exactly we mean by that, particularly as it relates to the observations by Justice Thomas insofar as using eugenics as a mean in this, in this case of choosing the race or the sex or addressing a, a, a disability that a child has. When we talk about the science of eugenics and what's behind it, how does all this fit into the filter of addressing the 73 decision? Well, it really all started with Darwinism and the idea that there are certain people or types of people that um, need to be called from the the so-called herd, from the human race, because they weakened the gene pool. That mantle was taken up by Hitler, and and that wasn't something that um, Darwin necessarily advocated, but it was his principles that um, the, the eugenicist decided to um, uh, extrapolate and apply to the human race. Hey, if there are people that we think are weaker, people that are deaf, they shouldn't be able to reproduce. So that was the outset of Planned Parenthood, the idea that there should be maybe even forced sterilization. We saw some of that, but at least some sort of <clears throat> prohibition, or not prohibition, so some sort of um, prophylactic that's used uh, to make sure that women and men who aren't uh, uh, who may be considered weak in the gene pool um, would be not able to re- uh, reproduce. And, of course, the natural outset from that was abortion. And um, and people, not necessarily Margaret Sanger, but based on her teachings, people started advocating for abortion. And, of course, now we have people who are aborting children um, in places like Iceland. They've, they're eliminating um, um, unborn children uh, because they have Down syndrome. That's classic eugenics talk. Should it be lost on anyone that the environment in which these discussions were taking place a hundred years ago was one steeped in racism? I mean, we were talking about a time when the Ku Klux Klan in the South had some of its greatest successes in the arena of recruitment. We saw the likes of Adolf Hitler complimenting Margaret Sanger on her work and research in the arena of eugenics. And so these coming together, coupled with the overwhelming disproportionate percentile of minorities um, who have had children aborted, that that has got to at some point uh, lead us as a country, as a nation, to stop and say, wait a minute exactly now, what are we doing here? It really should. The vast majority of children that are killed in the womb are minorities, and uh, it's it's targeting. There are many people um, uh, who are minorities who are starting to stand up and say, no, no, this is discriminatory against us. You're trying to eliminate our race. Many of Planned Parenthood's facilities are in minority neighborhoods, and uh, the vast majority of those babies that are being killed are minority babies, and we should be paying attention to that. Well, and, and, you know, I I think certainly notable of the fact that not only are the vast majority of Planned Parenthood centers located in minority communities, which, of course, the argument with there will be, well, minorities tend to have fewer resources at their disposal, and therefore the the need for um, uh, planning services is greater. Okay, that's a wink-wink. 
Uh, but there's also the notion that they have gone out and actively promoted their services uniquely to the point of abortion in those communities and to the denial of all other options. Now, at some point, we've got to, as I suggested a moment ago, stand up and say, now, wait just a minute. Something doesn't seem to be right here. If you've just joined our conversation, our visit in this segment of Lifeline with Senior Counsel and Vice President of the Center for Life with the Alliance Defending Freedom, Kevin Terrio is with us today. We're going to come back, talk a bit about the 92 Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision, and talk, too, about some of the alarming numbers as our conversation continues here on KFAX. Right now, though, we're going to step aside and get you updated on some traffic here. 517, the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. 22 after the hour, we're talking with Senior Counsel and Vice President for the Center for Life with the Alliance Defending Freedom, Attorney Kevin Terrio, not only about the issue of recent comments made by uh, Clarence Thomas on the issue of abortion, but the broader issue here as it relates to not just the high court revisiting the whole 73 Roe versus Wade, but also um, what I think has been long neglected, and that is public discussion of the the impact that abortion has had on minority communities. And, and I think interesting to note, if we just take some some census numbers, Kevin. Um, in 1970, the African American population in the United States accounted for approximately 11.1 percent. Now, we fast forward 40 years to 2010, the last full year of um, statistics that we have available. That percentile had only increased to 12.1 percent. So, over a 30 year period of time, where we would expect to see a population growth that uh, certainly would have kept pace with 3 or 4% per year. Instead, what's happened is over 40 years, it's increased only by 1%. I wonder how much that has to do with the fact that abortions amongst the black community in America versus all other races run three and a half times higher than the next closest minority group. That's a little shocking. It really is shocking. I, I think, you know, I haven't seen anything that uh, provides uh, proof of a direct correlation, but we can certainly uh, speculate that there is a correlation. And, uh, and, and, and of course, that is, plays right in with Planned Parenthood's playbook, and that is to put their facilities that, um, that kill uh, a lot of unborn babies and uh, more than any private organization uh, in the company to get government money for almost half a billion dollars a year and uh and of course um they have an anti-life agenda and that's something that we need to make sure that uh gets uh gets uh communicated especially when they are doing things like selling unborn baby parts and um and 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 don't have any good defense as to why that was actually happening and why they were doing it and sadly this organization who has been the beneficiary of hundreds of millions of dollars 
in in taxpayer funds down through the years has never ever been fully held accountable for its actions, either in the the baby body part arena or, you know, as we've seen. And I realize that uh, Gosnell is a bit of an extreme case, but not that far off in terms of what takes place in these abortion centers. And ironically, they've never been held to answer for anything down through the last 40 years. That's exactly right. And and I think think some of the um, narrative that you've heard recently about places like New York um, allowing abortion up until the time when the baby's uh, when the baby's born, and of course um, the the folks in Virginia who have indicated the governor indicated that well um, once the baby's born as long as it's not wanted um, we may consider not allowing it to live. So uh, there is definitely that stream running through um, the pro-abortion and uh, certainly the abortionists' uh, minds, and uh, we need to make sure that they're held accountable for that. At the end of the day, as we look at the possibility or the growing likelihood of the U.S. Supreme Court being forced to address this issue, perhaps for the first time, certainly since the uh, 1992 Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision, um, ultimately, is it better for the country to allow decisions on protecting life to occur on a state-by-state basis? And if so, how do we justify that when we look at states like California? Boy, talk about a dichotomy where you virtually see the outlawing of abortion in Missouri and yet here in California. And contrary to the opinions of most voters, we have a state that is decidedly uh, pro-choice to an extreme fault. Well, and you make a good point. However, we would much rather that issue, um, the ethical issue of when life and how to protect um, others be in the hands of people who are most likely to be able to understand what the issues are and have a say in them instead of five uh, people in, in, that are justices of the Supreme Court making that determination for the whole country. That's uh, We would like for democracy and the ability to... Um, debate the issues to take place, and that's best done at the state level. All right. Some good insights. Um, your sense, how soon might this, and realize, of course, it's all going to be triggered by by case law, but, but how soon? Given the trends that we've seen here just over the last three or four months, Kevin, of the n- growing number of states that are bringing about varying levels, varying degrees of prohibitions against certain types of, of abortions, again, with p- perhaps um, uh, Missouri leading the way here, uh, how soon can we even hazard a guess, might we think that the court might take this issue up? Oh, the court could take it up as early as next fall. Um, There are several cases pending before the court right now that it could decide to take and say, um, and begin the process of helping, uh, of of, uh, establishing the basis for um, reversing Roe and, and undermining Casey. Where do you see it in terms of the likelihood of a positive outcome? I mean, certainly the, the two new members of the high court are encouraging, but then we've got people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and, and even a little bit of a question mark lingering over uh, Chief Justice Roberts as to how he may come down on this topic. I'm very optimistic that the court understands that uh, Roe has been eroded, um, that uh, that it's not well-settled precedent. Bad we have, bad law in the first place. Bad 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 case law in the first place, to be sure. Exactly. Exactly. Bad law in the first place. We have five justices that understand 
um, the idea that the, that uh, we shouldn't be creating uh, constitutional rights, and that and that Roe, because it's not a well-established law, um, is susceptible to, be, to being overturned. So I think there, we have a very good chance. Absolutely. Very encouraging news. It's been an uphill battle, certainly, for folks involved in the pro-life movement for many, many years, and we're finally starting to see some light at the end of that tunnel. Kevin Terrio, Senior Counsel and Vice President of the Center for Life with the Alliance Defending Freedom. We appreciate your time. Great work as well. More information available on the web at adflegal.org. That's adflegal.org. 5.30 from KFAX. Let's get you updated again here on traffic. And as we do so, back over to the KFAX Traffic Center. Now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation as we continue on here the uh, Tuesday edition of Lifeline. I got to get a taste of story. This goes back many, many years ago. My uh, my mother and stepfather had um, a thirty five foot twin screw Chris Craft cabin cruiser moored up in uh, the Portland, Oregon area. Those of you in the, uh, in the Bay Area audience may be familiar with the uh, Hayden Island Marina there along the Columbia River. Beautiful spot. And it was great as a kid to uh, take the boat out and uh, do a little bit of fishing and, uh, and enjoy the water and so forth. Had a lot of fun. One time on a trip, there was a bit of a that happened, a little bit of a thud. And we thought for sure maybe it had been, you know, a, a twig or a branch or something in the water that the vessel had hit and didn't pay much attention to it, enjoyed our day of fishing, got back into the uh, the dock late in the afternoon, almost twilight time, and um, just out of uh, curiosity, my, my stepfather poked his head down in the bilge area, and sure enough, noticed a bit of a leak. And he declared at the time, well, it's a small leak. Um, I'll come back in a few days and uh, and repair it. It's okay, fine. Well, life happens, and his plans to come back in a couple of days didn't happen, so he put it off to the weekend, and then something came up, and he had it settled in his mind from his recollection from the week before that it was just a small leak, and so essentially nothing to worry about. Until one day, not long afterwards, the dockmaster called uh, with a bit of panic in his voice to inform my stepfather that he had better get down to the Hayden Island Marina but quick because his boat was sinking. <laughs> the small leak um, certainly took on a lot of water. Isn't it funny how we do that a lot in life? We think that little minor details don't seem to mean much. When they invade our spiritual life, it's just a small compromise, a small look, a small thought, a small leak. And before you know it, um, either our entire life or life's work in terms of ministry is sinking, or maybe even literally our boat. A new book out that deals with this very issue, and it has nothing to do with boats, but it does have to do with leaks and the danger of the small leaks in our lives. The book is called Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong. 
Its author is our guest tonight. He is the senior pastor at Cherrydale Baptist Church in Arlington, Virginia, and for more than 26 years has hosted Renewing Hope on a radio station back there, sister station of KFAX in Washington, D.C. And Pastor King, a delight to have you join us on the program. I delight to be with you, Craig. Thank you for having me. And as my mother would say, yeah, famous last words, it's just a slow leak. <laughs> Fortunately, we got there in time enough and ran the bilge pumps and, and got the water pumped out and uh, were able to make the repairs before the entire boat sunk. But boy, these days, at least when you relate these snow, slow leaks to what goes on in ministry, as we've seen kind of the, the bigger picture of money scandals and sex scandals and fake healing scandals, and, and now more recently, uh, major headlines captured uh, a leading pastor with a global imprint um, who's now been accused of murder for hire, you have to wonder to yourself, well, it didn't all start that way. It, it, it didn't start in a bad fashion. How many of these scandals, how many of these ministry disasters began as the quote-unquote slow leak and eventually sunk an entire ministry? I believe they all begin that way. No one suddenly has a blowout. There's always slow leaks, little decisions, little compromises. They don't seem like a big deal, but given time, tragedy strikes. And the enemy of our soul, I guess, is a real master at not only um, bringing temptation, opening doors, creating the slow leaks, but also convincing us that it's not that big of a deal. I mean, let's take, for example, the pastor who um, suddenly finds himself with a marriage on the rocks because he's been engaging in a pornography habit that's literally overtaken the totality of his life, and yet it began with just, you know, well, it's just one photograph. I'm just curious about this one site, and suddenly, before you know it, he sees not only his ministry, but his marriage on the rocks. Does, does the enemy really use our ability to convince ourselves it's no big deal to cause a lot of the greatest harm? I believe so. We've got three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we have to be very intentional about guarding our hearts because they're deceitful. And our first step in the wrong direction is to think it could never happen to me. Mm. In your book, Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong, and I mentioned, by the way, for the benefit of listeners, that there's much in this book that benefits not only the the men in the pulpit, but the people in the pews as well. And many of the principles in here not only apply to ministry and, and leadership, but also to, to day-to-day leadership, whether that means the leader of your family or the leader of your company, whatever it is that might uh, God might have called you to do. But I, I find it interesting, as you, as you lead us through in the book, The Eight Ways, you start out with a very fundamental principle lesson, which you refer to as checking your filter. Let's lead off our conversation tonight, if we can, Pastor King, about discussing a bit in terms of filter. You essentially, first off, say that there are two types of filters, and and one can lead to success in guarding one's heart and one's life, and the other, unfortunately, can lead to disaster. Walk us through these two filters. Okay. Uh, That is rooted in a profound encounter I had just before I began seminary as a young newlywed, 
and moved to Portland, Oregon, and I was assigned a big brother in the seminary. I called him up. His name was Tom Heflin. We chit-chatted and agreed to meet a few days later. And then he said to me, Steve, did you hear what happened to me this weekend? And I said, Tom, I just got to town. I have no idea. And he said, well, I work in a warehouse with several other seminarians. It was Friday evening. I was in the back of the warehouse. They were in the front, and they didn't know I was there. And I had my right arm up in a major machine cleaning it. They flipped the switch and cut my right arm off at the shoulder. Wow. Steve, I just got out of the hospital. Isn't God good? And I said, wait, wait, tell me that again. He went through the story again, and he ended it the same way, almost like a creed. Isn't God good? Now, I was thinking either you're in shock or you're spouting platitudes to me, or you know God in a way I don't know him. So I watched Tom Heflin for the next four years, and I learned a very important lesson. Tom Heflin meant what he said, and he taught me there are only two ways to live. One is to filter all of your life circumstances, including cut-off arms, through the character and the promises of God, and have hope, or reverse it, and filter God through the circumstances of life. And those are the two kinds of leaders. One that finishes strong has the habit of always filtering life through the character and promises of God. And compromisers always filter God through the circumstances of life. Well, what a profound principle, and of course a principle that not only applies to leadership but to everyday living. How many believers struggle in their relationship with Christ because it's sort of feelings-driven, it's circumstance-driven, and on the days when life is good, health is good, the job is good, the kids are good, the wife is good, we feel as if God is good, and on the days when everything is falling apart— suddenly using filter number two as opposed to filter number one, um, our relationship with God ain't so hot. In fact, we might even question the, the grace or goodness of God out of a sense of feeling that we've been abandoned. And the profound difference between filtering God through the circumstances of life as opposed to filtering the circumstances of life through our understanding of the, the, the character and promises of God is, is, is really everything in terms of, of getting it right or getting it all wrong. It is. And, and only faith in Jesus Christ gives us the power to do that and the Holy Spirit, of course. But it's, it's a discipline that we need to put into our daily lives. And anyone who's going to be a spiritual leader needs to start there. Check your filter. If you've just joined our conversation, Pastor Steve King is with us today. He's got a new book out called Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong. And while certainly he puts to work more than 45 years of pulpit ministry um, in, in penning this book that is largely targeted towards ministry leaders, many of the principles in here, as you're hearing, apply to day-to-day life. They apply to leaders at multiple levels, whether it's leadership within the business world or certainly leadership within your household. Understanding what these eight principles are and how to apply them is is pivotal and can be the key to either success 
or failure in life and ultimately in your ministry. Uh, one of the other things that you talk about in the book, um, and, and I think it's an important one, in terms of the influence of the gospel on our life and the, the predominance that um, our, our understanding of the gospel and the sharing of the good news ought to be. Walk us a, a bit through that, if you would, uh, in, 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 in that sense of, of being driven by the gospel. That's chapter two, be shaped by the gospel. It's essential. And I personally experienced the devastation of not knowing that. I came to Christ at the age of nine, and by the age of 21, I was a miserable believer. Even though I sincerely loved the Lord, I believed the Bible and its core truths and the gospel. What I did not understand is that the gospel was not to be used just to get people into heaven. It was to shape every single aspect of my life, starting with my identity, knowing that I'm secure in Christ, and then every single relationship. So that's what that chapter is about, and uh, it's built around a couple of tools that I believe, when used daily, really teach you how to do this, what it looks like. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of those is called the Gospel You, and it's a tool that our pastors have developed over the years, but the basic concept is this. Most of us have issues in life, and our common response to our issues is to change our behavior. And if we get it right to accountability and discipline, and that's all we do, then we're living on the surface, and one of two things will happen. One, you can become quite prideful and look down your nose at those who can't do it, or you can go to despair because you're constantly failing. And many believers yo-yo between pride and despair, pride and despair. God has a better solution, and that is under every issue is the issue of the heart. And the Bible mentions the heart 800 times. Heart has a treasure. Your heart shapes your life. It's what you live for. And our hearts are wicked. We can't change them. Only the gospel of Christ can change a human heart. So we need to constantly have a gospel heart interchange. And when that happens, our behavior changes. But it's flowing from a changed heart. You know, what fascinates me about this perspective, Pastor King, is that as we think about the Great Commission of the Gospel in the context of the way most believers apply it, and if we just did a quick survey here and said, you know, if you had to define what the Gospel is at the core, what would you say? Most believers, I think, would say, well, the Gospel is something we do. We go out and we share the Gospel, and we we proclaim Jesus Christ, and we win others for Jesus. What you're suggesting is that while that's an absolute truism, at the very core, the impact of the gospel is is more than just something we do, but it really becomes then someone we are. Is, is that accurate? I would agree with that, and the gospel is, is not just the entrance into the kingdom, it's how we live in it. And uh, when you look at all of the major 
exhortations in the New Testament or commands to believers in Christ, if you look at them in context, every one of them are rooted in, shaped by the gospel. Constantly taken back to that. So, for example, forgive as you have been forgiven. Love as you have been loved. Uh, Commandment not to worry because of what Christ has done for you. You're secure in him. All of those commands are rooted in and shaped by the gospel. That was a huge aha moment for me in college, and it turned my life around, gave me renewed hope and power and purpose, because it's not just about me doing my best to earn God's approval. It's me believing I have his approval in Christ, and I have the Holy Spirit and a new identity, and by faith, I let that shape every aspect of my life. And necessarily so, it's going to impact every aspect of your life, that suddenly now this goes well beyond the notion, and I think a lot of people uh, falter for this, that they get the sense that uh, the gospel is something that that you just kind of check off of a list, like a shopping list. Okay, you made a decision for Christ. Yep, check that off, and we move on to the next item. Wait a minute now. It is so deeply more profound than that, that sadly we kind of, you know, almost dismissively move beyond that point instead of lingering for a while and saying, let's look at how the gospel shapes how we think, how we relate to God, how we live out our lives. The book is called Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong. Steve King is its author. The book, by the way, is newly published by Salem Books, available through Amazon.com. You can also order it online, SalemBooks.com. Let's take a brief time out. We're going to come back to more of our visit with Pastor Steve King as this edition of Lifeline continues. All right, 548, let's get caught up in some traffic here. Back over at the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking today with Pastor Steve King. He's senior pastor at Cherrydale Baptist Church in Arlington, Virginia. Got a new book out called Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong. And we're certainly not going to get to um, all eight points in our conversation tonight, but we're, we're simply trying to touch on some of the, the, the key ones here and ones that certainly are applicable for, for many of us. One of the things I find fascinating, you get into the book, uh, the issue of church leadership, and, and certainly pastors will tell you, well, I spent many years in the seminary learning how to lead the church, and yet far more often than not, few pastors really fully understand or appreciate how God uses the people in the church. And to be sure, there there are some that are perfected saints and do a great job, and others not so perfected, but God in his sovereignty and wisdom manages to use us all. Yes. And, you know, the third chapter, Align Your Life, is about aligning your life with where where God is working. And one of the key areas we know he's working in is the local church, because Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And what I've discovered, there are a lot of 
young entrepreneurial pastors, lots of books written on the church and how to do it well. But many times, the church is never defined. It's just assumed. So going to the Scripture to define what a local church actually is, that's extremely important. If you don't know what it is, how do you know if you're doing it right? And once you align with what God says a local church actually is and how it's to function, then is to become a priority in our life and what that looks like. And not doing it in a healthy way with God's uh, definition of a local church can lead to lots of slow leaks and people that are devastated along the way. And certainly this perspective, and I think certainly a, a very false economy, where we try to uh, create a vision or a plan and then are desirous of God getting on board with our plan as opposed to finding out what God's plan is and getting on board with Him. Amen. And when you can communicate to people where God is working, His promises, the power of the Holy Spirit, and our task is to join Him in His work, then you become unstoppable. If it's the other way, where you try to cast the vision and get everybody on board, it can become your own little kingdom. But we need to go back to the book, How Did Jesus Define a Church? What does it look like? And follow that. I served on a mission board for uh, 29 years, and we do great work all over the world among unreached people groups. And we were having a board meeting several years ago, and our mission was to plant churches around the world. And it dawned on us, nowhere in our documents did we define what a church is. (laughs) (laughs) So we went back and corrected that and went to the scriptures, clearly defined what a local church is, and that has changed the way the mission functions. We know exactly what we're supposed to be doing now because we defined it. Well, you also have a yardstick upon which you can use to measure your success, because otherwise you're you're out there planting churches. Well, how, how do you know if you're successful if there's no fundamental definition to exactly what that church looks like? Yes, yes. I've been here in Washington, D.C. for years. Everyone knows about the Air and Space Museum, and few people know about Sir Percival Lowell. And They've heard of Lowell's Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, but Sir Percival Lowell was featured in the Air and Space Museum. In his day, he believed that there was life on planet Mars. He wrote books about it, lectured on it, drew diagrams. And he was so famous, uh, no one challenged him, and his evidence was there was an intricate set of canals on the planet that he said is evidence that there was life there. Well, we now have landed probes on Mars, mapped the whole planet. No one's ever seen those canals. And we now know that Sir Percival Lowell looked through his telescope at Mars, tracing canals, He had a rare eye disease called Lowell syndrome. He was tracing the veins of his own eyeball. Mm. And we can get spiritual Lowell syndrome. Lowell needed somebody to reveal reality to him. And Jesus has revealed what his church is. And if we ignore it, we'll have Lowell syndrome and go off the rails. 
There's another point, and I want to have you touch on this before our time wraps up. And again, as I mentioned, we're we're not going to have time to get to all eight points, but that's a good excuse for folks to go out and get a copy of your new book, Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong. Uh, as we delineated at the top of our conversation, Pastor King, you've been in ministry for more than 45 years now. Have you ever seen a case where a a ministry or a church with faltering leadership had a good, healthy marriage? Or is there a correlation between the health of one's marriage and the success of one's leadership and ministry? I think there's a direct correlation between a healthy marriage and leadership in the local church. As a matter of fact, if we follow what First Timothy and Titus teach about qualifications for spiritual leadership, you're not qualified if your marriage is not healthy. It begins at home, and isn't it interesting? The Bible begins with a marriage, it ends with a marriage, and in the middle, God is portrayed as a lover pursuing us. And Paul said that marriage is so sacred, it preaches the gospel. Whether it's a Christian marriage or not, if it's built on godly principles, So I would say emphatically, yes, healthy marriages breed healthy leaders which impact healthy local churches. And absent a healthy marriage, you're almost sure to be heading into some very dangerous waters, and when the seas get a little rough and the storms come in, the likelihood of water washing over the top and into the vessel and maybe hitting some of those uh, those sandbars along the way or the uh, tree branches, as I suggested in my opening remarks, that causes multiple leaks to spring. And those leaks, of course, can, in fact, sink your entire ministry and your marriage relationship. The book, apropos for both leaders uh, at any level, both inside and outside of the church, called Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong, newly published by... Salem Books and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through SalemBooks.com. Our thanks to Pastor Steve King, Senior Pastor at Cherrydale Baptist Church in Arlington, Virginia, for being with us tonight. And uh, book publisher, of course, same fine folks that own this great radio station. All right, we're going to turn a corner here. We're going to get you around the corner in just a moment. But to head that way, we're going to give away some tickets. We've got tickets to Spirit West Coast coming to the Concord Pavilion this Friday, June the 7th. And I've got tickets for caller number 11 at 888-367-5329. That's 888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. Get a look at traffic right now. 6 o'clock from the KFAX Traffic Center. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.